Radio Buddhist Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You're listening to the sound of universal compassion. Today, 16th of April. Today, we will continue listening to Tangent's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program, where paradoxically for Buddhists, we are about to come over all martial, with swords and enemies and weapon dodging. However, to set your mind at rest, if you think we're advocating taking up arms against human enemies, our foes in this battle are not made of flesh and blood. We're following the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, a text by the ancient Buddhist master Shantideva, and in the seventh chapter he has this to say, Just as an old warrior approaches the swords of an enemy upon the battlefront, so shall I avoid the weapons of the disturbing conceptions and skillfully bind this enemy. The operative words here are, of course, the weapons of the disturbing conceptions, for our greatest enemy in the universe don't live outside of our very own minds. Those enemies are the concepts and emotions like anger and hatred that play havoc with our inner lives. Nevertheless, even though they are the causes of our misery, we're quick to blame and take revenge on outside forces, such as other people, or situations that appear to go wrong. Shantideva has pointed out all along that we can choose how we react. However, we usually cannot immediately choose what happens to us or what the environment brings. We react with anger and we make ourselves and those around us unhappy. React with a calm and relatively cheerful mind, and we and those with us stay happy. So in this verse, Shantideva is recommending that we learn how to face our reflective emotions in the same way as an old soldier has learned how to face his enemies on the battlefield. As the veteran soldier is skillful at avoiding the whirling swords during battle, we should become skilled at both avoiding the sharp blades of emotion and tying the emotion down so that it has no way to harm us. Once the afflictions are bound up, they will no longer be able to harm us and we can face anything with a smile on our lips. We finished the last program with a Padmakara translation of this verse, and that goes, As seasoned fighters face the swords of enemies upon the battle line, lightly dodge the weapons of defilement and overcome the foe with nimble skill. This shows us how to overcome the negative emotions, not with serious intensity, says the verse, but light-heartedly and nimbly. Pema Chodron says this in her commentary, It's easy to become deadly serious about freeing ourselves from suffering. People need help now, and we have to get ourselves in shape fast. 
But in the so-called war against the afflictive emotions, heavy-handedness is just another ego trip. Instead of struggling, Shantideva suggests bringing some lightness into the equation, like children at play, like a hot elephant diving into a lake. Diving? I think she may have never seen how an elephant approaches water. Like a joyful horse or a breeze of delight, bring enthusiasm to the task. In the beginning, of course, this may not seem possible, she goes on. It's the seasoned fighters who, cannot, who can do this. But that's no reason to get discouraged. It may be hard work now, but refraining from the afflictions and being open to whatever arises is like learning to drive a car. It gets easier with practice. On the Bodhisattva path, even after a direct experience of emptiness, it takes a long time to become skilled at helping others. Meanwhile, if you keep your sense of humor and playfully catch yourself whenever you get uptight, your lightness and confidence can't help but grow. And that's what Shanti, uh, Pema Chodron says. Shanti Deva then goes on with more war imagery, but before we join him hacking and slashing, let's set a motivation as we usually do. The Bodhisattva motivation to become enlightened to benefit all suffering beings is by far the best. But complete liberation from your own suffering is also pretty good. So please set your motivation as best you can, but hopefully no lower than those two. Thank you. And now let's continue with the fight. You might remember that Shantideva was a prince from the warrior caste in ancient India, so it's natural that he uses fighting imagery. This is what he says next. If someone dropped his sword during a battle, he would immediately pick it up out of fear. Likewise, if I lose the weapon of mindfulness, I should quickly retrieve it, being afraid of hell. For some reason, this brings to mind Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the battles of Aragorn and the good guys against orcs, trolls and the black riders and the rest of Saruman's motley crowd of uglies. Drop your sword against one of those fellas and you'd be lunch. In any case, Shantideva is comparing such a scenario with losing mindfulness against the afflictive emotions. As soon as you give them an opening, those afflictions are ready to chew you over. And that only means suffering and more suffering. So this verse is about the urgency we need to approach our work with, says Pema Chodron. If we want to be unbeatable against the afflictions, we have to combine lightness with urgency, she writes. On one hand, it is critical to dismantle the afflictive emotions. On the other hand, if you're too driven, you simply create another form of self-absorption. The trick is to see when you get hooked, then gently but urgently come back to the present moment. Just as a soldier can't be nonchalant about dropping his sword in battle, we can't be complacent about losing our mindfulness. When our mind is distracted, the afflictions move in like a band of robbers. But if we bring our mind back with harshness or panic, we'll never generate the self-compassion we need to progress along the path. Let's digress here a little and talk about the self-compassion that we need for the path, because Westerners are very good at approaching themselves with a degree of harshness. I've often spoken with people who tell me they're compassionate towards others, but when it comes to themselves, they find it difficult to be kind. We can be very self-critical, especially when we think we've messed up. And some people believe that you don't achieve 
unless you're your own worst critic. However, compassion is taking an increasingly larger role nowadays in psychological therapies, and that doesn't only mean compassion for others. In the July 2012 edition of Scientific American, in an article on self-compassion and mental wellness, Marina Krakowski writes, Being kind to yourself is a surefire way to improve your mental health and reach your goals, a growing body of work suggests. Now research has revealed an easy way to boost the self-compassion by showing kindness to others. Self-compassion is distinct from self-esteem, a tray that can shade into narcissism. Nor should it be confused with self-pity or self-indulgence. Self-compassion is treating yourself with the same kindness and care you treat a friend with, says Christine Neff, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin and the leading researcher in the growing field of self-compassion. People who are self-compassionate avoid harsh critiques or negative generalizations of themselves, and they see their troubles as part of the human condition. Research is showing that this gentle, non-judgmental approach helps individuals bounce back, even after major crises. For example, in a study reported in, in the journal Psychological Science, scientists found that newly divorced people who spoke compassionately towards themselves adjusted significantly better in the following 10 months than those who spoke more harshly, with self-compassion outperforming self-esteem and even optimism as a predictor of good coping. Contrary to what many people think, treating yourself kindly is also good for achieving your goals. People believe that self-criticism helps to motivate them, Neff says. Those low in self-compassion think that unless they are hard on themselves, they will not amount to much. But research reveals that being kind to yourself does not lower your standards. With self-compassion, you reach just as high. But if you don't reach your goals, it's okay, because your sense of self-worth isn't contingent on success, Neff explains. Krakowski's article goes on to say that research is also showing that, as Buddhism Buddhism teaches, we can cultivate our self-compassion through meditation and other techniques. She mentions a very simple exercise that Neff writes about, pressing your hand against your heart or giving yourself a surreptitious hug can give yourself compassion a momentary boost. And here's a good Buddhist technique. Krakowski goes on to write, a recent study at the University of California, Berkeley, suggests an even more surprising way to heighten self-compassion, acting compassionately towards others. In a presentation in January at the Society for Personality and Social Psychology Conference, researchers Juliana Brainus and Serena Chen described a set of experiments in which they asked one group of participants to give support to another person, such as writing down suggestions to make a a friend feel better after causing a fender bender. Those in the support-giving condition went on to rate themselves higher in compassion for themselves than did participants who'd been asked to either recall a fun time with a friend or to merely read about the suffering of others. There was a unique benefit to giving support. The benefit wasn't just from feeling connected or realizing that others had problems too, explains Brainus, a doctoral candidate in psychology and the study's lead author. During tough times, 
People naturally tend to focus on themselves and find it difficult to support others, she says. But actually, as many people intuitively discover, taking the opportunity to support other people can make you feel better about what you're going through. So even science is now telling us that if we're kind to, our, to others, we're also kind to ourselves. In contrast, Shanti Deva shows that when we give in to the afflictive emotions and being too hard on ourselves must rate as one of those, it's like poisoning ourselves. His next verse says, Just as poison spreads throughout the body in dependence upon the circulation of blood, likewise, if a disturbing conception finds an opportunity, unwholesomeness will permeate my mind. And Pema Chodron points out that even slightest grudges or subtle resentments can steadily spread until they take over our lives. In his article, Living with Resentment is Like Taking Poison and Hoping the Other Guy Will Get Sick, psychotherapist Mark Sitchell includes an anonymous paragraph he found about hatching your resentment. It goes like this. The moment you start to resent a person, you become his slave. He controls your dreams, absorbs your digestion, robs you of your peace of mind and goodwill, and takes away the pleasure of your work. He ruins your religion and nullifies your prayers. You cannot take a vacation without his going along. He destroys your freedom of mind and hounds you wherever you go. There's no way to escape the person you resent. He's with you when you're awake. He invades your privacy when you, when you sleep. He's close beside you when you drive your car and when you're on the job. You can never have efficiency or happiness. He influences even the tone of your voice. He requires you to take medicine for indigestion, headaches and loss of energy. He even steals your last moment of consciousness before you go to sleep. So, if you want to be a slave, harbor your resentments. Actually, you aren't the slave of the other person. You are the slave of the disturbing conception. Even if you never see that other person again, the disturbing conception will make you remember with torment. The trouble is that if we give in to even the slightest resentment at a perceived injury or insult from someone and let it dwell in our minds, the next time we see that person, it will color in our interaction. We will feel uncomfortable, and that only increases the resentment. And so it goes on. In due course of time and interactions, we will really come to dislike the person intensely. And that's how to become the slave of the dis- disturbing conception. But we could also rewrite that anonymous paragraph for intense attachment, or what some people call being madly in love. This is regarded as a good thing in the women's magazines, but let's rephrase the paragraph and see how well it fits. The moment you start to fall madly in love with a person, you become his slave. He controls your dreams, absorbs your digestion, robs you of your peace of mind and goodwill, and takes away the pleasure of your work. He ruins your religion and nullifies your prayers. You cannot take a vacation without his going along. He destroys your freedom of mind and hounds you wherever you go. There's no way to escape the person you love. He's with you when you are awake. He invades your privacy when you sleep. He's close beside you when you drive your car and when you're on the job. You can never have efficiency or happiness. He influences even the tone of your voice. He requires you to take medicine for indigestion, headaches and loss of energy. 
He even steals your last moment of consciousness before you go to sleep. So, if you want to be a slave, fall madly in love. You can, of course, just exchange the male pronoun for the female one. The effect is the same. It doesn't appear that the result of resentment is much different from that of serious attachment. And how easy is it when a relationship based on so-called love falls apart and resentment takes over? It's an exchange of one torturer for another. Even worse, without much analysis, we may get the idea that we just choose the wrong person this time, and if we follow the process again with someone else, all will be well. But, as Einstein said, insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. Therefore, we have to be watchful and alert to what our mind is doing, and when the familiar but uncomfortable habit tugs at us, we must be ready to resist. His Holiness the Dalai Lama points out that in the next couple of verses, Shantideva shows us how diligently we have to use our mindfulness and introspection. Those who practice should be as attentive as a frightened man carrying a jar full of mustard oil, who's being threatened by someone with a sword that he will be killed if he spills just one drop. Just as I would swiftly stand up if a snake came into my lap, likewise, if any sleep or laziness occur, I shall quickly turn them back. I've never heard of the story before, but Pema Chodron relates that in the Buddha's time, there was a king who poured scorn on mindfulness practice. To show the power of the practice, one day when the king was being entertained by dancers, musicians and so on, the Buddha got some practitioners of mindfulness to walk into the hall, each carrying a jar brimming with oil. Behind every one of these practitioners came a swordsman, ready to strike if even a drop of oil was spilled. None of the oil was. Not even a three-ring circus is distracting when there's a sword at your back, writes Pema Chodron. And it showed the king the tremendous power of the stabilized mind. Then in the next verse, Shantideva uses the analogy of a snake slithering into your lap. Now, I'm not altogether sure that the best thing to do is to suddenly leap up as he recommends. In my youth in South Africa, where there are lots of snakes, we were encouraged to freeze if we came across a snake. And sometimes in the bush, I met snakes going about their business. And as long as we were careful, slow, and didn't make any threatening moves, they would generally leave us alone. A sudden movement may just make something like a cobra instantly aggressive, and they strike like greased lightning. However, Shantideva is using the image to make the point that as soon as sleepiness or sluggishness creeps into the mind, we should dispel them. In one of his talks, Ajahn Brahm, the very well-known Australian monk and meditator, does advise that we look carefully and see whether the mind is just being slothful or if it would really benefit from a short nap. If we do need sleep, it is better to leave the practice and catch 40 winks. I think we won't achieve anything if we try to force a tired mind to concentrate. Better to admit we would do better coming back to the practice with a rested and refreshed mind after a short ziz. Shantideva then goes on, Each time something unwholesome occurs, I should criticize myself and then contemplate for a long time that I shall never let this happen again. When we encounter hindrances, His Holiness says, it's not sufficient just to stop them. 
We have to also reflect on how they come in the way of and disturb our practice. But it may seem that with the, with the words, I should criticize myself, Shantideva is recommending just what we earlier said in the article on self-compassion that we shouldn't do to ourselves. Pema Chodron says, though, that he's not advising us to be harsh, but to engage in some honest self-reflection. She writes, on the spiritual path, we need to make friends with ourselves. Otherwise, Shantideva's recommendations will backfire into utterly useless guilt and self-contempt. The only way to heal ourselves is to build on the foundation of loving-kindness. Then it's not a problem to recognize neuroses as neuroses and connect with our genuine heartbreak. This tender, broken-hearted longing to stop harming ourselves naturally leads to contemplating for a long time that in the future I shall never let this happen again. Pema Chodron then goes on to tell a couple of stories about a Tibetan yogi by the name of Geshe Ben. Whenever this eccentric fellow saw in himself any kindness or wisdom, she writes, he referred to himself as Venerable Geshe. When he saw himself getting hooked by the afflictive emotions, he addressed himself as, You fool! Once when he was visiting some patrons, Geshe Ben saw an open bag of barley flour hanging on the wall. He needed some flour, and when he was left alone, he unconsciously started dipping in. Suddenly realizing what he was doing, he screamed at the top of his lungs, Thief! Thief! I've caught a thief! When his host rushed in, there he was with his hand in the bag. Now in the version I know, Geshe Ben was taking tea, but it doesn't matter what the substance was. I think you get the point. Pema Chodron describes another time when a lot of monks had been invited for a meal at a patron's house. Geshe Ben was seated last. As the servers were doling out his favorite yogurt, he began to panic, writes Pema Chodron. What if there's none left for me? How can that fat monk take such a huge helping? As feelings of resentment grew, he began to connive how he could move ahead of the other monks before it was too late. Then he realized with remorse what he was doing and patiently waited his turn. When they finally got round to him, he put his hand over his bowl and yelled, No yogurt for this greedy fellow. This yogurt addict has already had enough. Pema Chodron says that such tales have taught her to acknowledge her small-mindedness without getting too heavy-handed or judgmental. There's such a difference between chastising ourselves with humor and kindness when going wrong and acting foolishly and coming down hard on ourselves, thinking that we need to be taught a lesson. In her book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, the well-known insight meditator and teacher Sharon Salzberg writes, In certain philosophical systems in India during the Buddha's time, it was believed that if the body was tortured enough, abused enough, the spirit would soar free and be liberated. Nowadays, most of us are not inclined to torture our bodies to free our spirits. However, we do seem to have our own variation of that theme by believing that if we abuse our minds enough with self-hatred and self-condemnation, somehow that abuse will be a path that liberates us. For a true spiritual transformation to flourish, we must see beyond this tendency to mental self-flagellation. Spirituality based on self-hatred can never sustain itself. Generosity coming from self-hatred becomes martyrdom. Morality born of self-hatred becomes rigid repression. 
Love for others without the foundation of love for ourselves becomes a loss of boundaries, codependencies, and a painful and fruitless search for intimacy. But when we contact through meditation our true nature, we can allow others to find theirs. And perhaps, paradoxically, when we touch that true nature, which glows with real love and compassion, and give that space to others, we find a completely new way to relate to others in our environment. In another teaching on the loving-kindness meditation, Sharon Salzberg says, One of the most amazing things about the meta-teaching is that there is tremendous emphasis on beginning the practice with ourselves. We work with that openness and connection, the recognition of the goodness within us. We reteach ourselves our loveliness so that we can flower from within of self-blessing, beginning with ourselves. Salzburg continues, The Buddha once said something I found quite amazing. He said, You can search the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and compassion than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself are more deserving of your love and affection than anybody. Sometimes we can have an idea that self-hatred or self-judgment can be the basis of spiritual transformation. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. We say that for a true spiritual transformation to flourish, we have to go beyond that tendency of self-hatred and self-judgment and rather be basing our practice, our efforts, our work on tremendous compassion for ourselves and for others. It is with this basis of loving kindness and compassion for ourselves that we practice mindfulness. And then even though we know we will fail from time to time, there will be no need for any mental self-flagellation, which, as Sharon Salzberg points out, does not take us through spiritual transformation. Shantideva writes in the next verse, Likewise, in all these situations, I shall acquaint myself with mindfulness. With this motivation as a cause, I shall aspire to meet with teachers or accomplish the tasks tasks they assign me. In order to have strength for everything, I should recall before undertaking any, any action the advice in the chapter on conscientiousness and then joyfully rise to the task. In his commentary on these verses, His Holiness also says it's very important to reflect on the benefits of compassion to enhance the power of mindfulness and introspection. And that doesn't only mean the benefits of compassion for others. When the Bodhisattva motivation focuses on all sentient beings, it does not discount oneself. As my teacher Ken Sotapke Rinpoche used to say, you are also a sentient being, so you are naturally included. In her commentary, Pema Chodron notes that when we are fully awake and present, we can better fulfill our tasks and hear what our teachers have to say. When our minds wander as they usually do, we miss a lot, and great swathes of our experience are lost. So we will do well to contemplate what Shantideva says here, and then put it into practice lightly, not sternly. And with that, we come to the final verse of this chapter. Just as the wind blowing back and forth controls the movement of a piece of cotton, so shall I be controlled by joy, and in this way accomplish everything. This beautiful verse is an image of fruition enthusiasm and gives us a feeling what is possible for all of us, Pema Chodron writes. Despite the heartbreak of seeing the world suffering, we're joyful that we can do our part to alleviate rather than add to that misery. This happiness gives us access to a tremendous bank of energy that was previously bound up in self-absorption. 
Now everything that took effort happens spontaneously and naturally. Imagine the upliftedness of a life where, controlled by joy, everything is accomplished, Pema Chodron writes. So, although for us beginners a lot of the initial work is difficult, and sometimes very difficult, we can take heart in the thought that with enthusiasm, determination and effort, it will become progressively easier. We just have to keep on trying, even though we cannot help but occasionally fail. But when we do, that is the time we must be most kind to ourselves. And with that, we must say goodbye, for time is up. Thanks for joining the program today. Please do so again next week. But before going, let's dedicate all the positive potential from this program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering.